0: The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. We are going right now through the book of Acts. We are uh, at this point in a transition moment where we have just finished the majority of our time with the book uh, in the book concerning Peter, and now we are beginning with the ministry of Paul. Last week, we saw the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas as they were sent out of the church at Antioch, and they were sent out for the purpose of going to plant other churches. And so today, we are going to see the very first steps that they took place Uh, that they took part in in their missionary journeys. I don't know anything about boxing. Maybe you do. I've seen some of it. I really don't understand much of it. It's just a couple of guys hitting each other in the face for a long period of time. And to me, although it is interesting, it's not that enjoyable to see these guys pummeling one another. Uh, However, I think the best fight that I have ever observed or have ever heard of was when I watched on YouTube. It took place in August 6th of 1993. And that was the best fight that I think you will ever see as well. And uh, we'll learn why later on. For now, let's see what the Word of God says in Acts 13, starting in verse 4. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they preached the word or proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "'You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord?' And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray that God would add his blessing to the word this morning. Lord, we come before you recognizing that you are a God of infinite power. You are a God who is completely and totally separate from us. You are high above us. You do all that you please. But Lord, we thank you that your word also tells us that you condescend to us, that you bend low to incline your ear to us, that you even went farther and sent your son to die for us. God, how great is your love. Today, Lord, as we see a battle taking place in the spiritual realm, Lord, I pray that you would show us and remind us that you are our God who is for us. Therefore, who could be against us? Lord, we pray that you would give us strength and encouragement in our inner man, that we might be built up and established in the faith, that we might stand firm amidst trials and tribulation, that even when there is satanic opposition against our gospel call, Lord, that you will help us to realize there is no battle that you will not destroy and win. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. We pray, Lord, today you would give us strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To best understand this text, I'm going to break it up into a couple of smaller segments, and that uh, in that way, we're going to have six main points this morning. First, we'll consider the mission, and then the composition, then the magician, the transition, the admonition, and the contrition. We'll start with the mission so in verse 4. One of the disadvantages that most of us have in reading the book of Acts is our very limited knowledge of the geography that is constantly being referenced by the author Luke. So in order to assist us in our study, now that we are transitioning out of the region of Israel that we're probably more familiar with as Bible readers, I would like to regularly show you maps that will give you a sense of exactly what it is that's taking place here. So uh, we have that one ready to go. Here's where we're going to begin today. It said that they started in Antioch. Remember, that's where the church sent them out. This is going to be one of the centerpieces, one of the great churches in the early church, the church at Antioch. And they went down to Seleucia and they traveled by boat to Salamis And then they went the 110 miles across the island to Paphos. Just a little bit of history here about Cyprus. Cyprus is a Roman colony at this point. Rome had taken over and they had removed the capital city from Salamis and had moved it over to Paphos. They had changed it because, as you know, when you are running a government, you want to have the most control and power and influence. And they knew, the Romans knew, that Salamis was a place where the Jewish people had significant influence. In fact, this is one of the only cities that was a smaller city in that region that had multiple synagogues. So you'll see that when they get there, it says they went to the synagogues in Salamis, plural, because there is a large enough Jewish population there that the Roman government decided, we want to move our own capital over here and they began building up strength and power to control the people. And as you know, even when there's a recession in the United States, the one place that never gets hit at all is the capital region. There's always money in the capital region, and that is true here as well. There is much power and influence, and on this island, this is the most significant and most powerful place, and we're going to see how that plays into what's taking place in our text today. So I want you to notice that Paul and Barnabas come here because Barnabas is originally from this island. Although he is a Jewish man who had owned property in Jerusalem that he later donated, this is his homeland. This is where he probably grew up and this is where it says that he was from. Also, I want you to remember that the church over in Antioch was planted by people from this island. So you will take note that Paul and Barnabas are not here to plant churches. Rather, if you were traveling. traveling across the the Eastern world at this time, the best way for you to get to the more populated regions was to go from Cyprus and take a boat up north. And the region you the reason you do that is because all of that area between Antioch and this area over here is all very dangerous. It is dangerous terrain because of mountains, and it is dangerous terrain because it's very sparse, and it's easy to freeze to death or get very hungry and starve to death. Also, there's many dangers from robbers and other sorts of things. So, most of the time when people traveled, they did not take the land route, so what they're doing today is just getting from point A to point B. But as they are going, they are still desires to proclaim the good news. So now that we have the geography in order, let's take into account what it is that was taking place. It says in verse four that they were being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So as much as this was an adventure and this was an exciting expedition, this was not something that was just randomly decided. The Holy Spirit was like a magnet that was pulling the needle on their compass of exactly where they were supposed to go. This is why Paul refers to himself later in his letters as a bondservant or literally as a slave of Christ. He is not choosing his own destiny. I don't know if you have ever heard the poem Invictus. It's uh, one of the more famous poems. I am not a poet. I don't understand poetry. But I do know the final line of that poem says, I am the master of my fate. Of course, that's not true for any of us. But here, Paul and Barnabas, they have given themselves over completely to the work and to the ministry of the Lord. They are going where the Lord has called them to go. And in this case, it meant that they were called to travel. Now, remember that travel did not have the appeal back then that it does now. I remember seeing a commercial when I was back in high school at my grandmother's house that was on the Travel Channel, and it was this thing that said, if you haven't gone to these 50 places before you die, you haven't lived. People like to travel now. There's a delight in being able to see new places and explore new things. But there was not the same kind of appeal back then. Even now, traveling is inconvenient. My mother's here to help out with a hopefully very soon coming baby. She was supposed to come on Friday night. Her flight was completely canceled or delayed or something was, uh, happened because of the extreme winds in New York. Traveling is inconvenient, so she came in yesterday instead. And she said it was the best flight she's had in many years, so thank God for that. But traveling tends to be inconvenient even now. But back then, there were no airports, and there were no shuttle buses, and there were no rental cars, and there were no big hotels. Rather, there were donkeys and carts and inns and lots and lots and lots and lots of walking. Now, there are always going to be some dangers that go along with traveling. Uh, Back when I lived in Italy, they said that Rome at the Trevi Fountain is the number one place in all of Europe to get pickpocketed. But back then, they didn't just have to worry about pickpockets. They worried about people like we hear about in the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, where the man is traveling from one city to another. And these guys don't just take what he has in his pockets. They beat him until he is literally bleeding out and are going to die if someone does not help him. There was danger in traveling. Consider the way that Paul would later describe the dangers. So uh, as he's traveling, he explains it this way in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-six 26 through 27. He says, He was on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. It is an incredible thing that this small missionary team was faithful to go out into the unknown with this kind of boldness, despite the dangers that they certainly knew were on the horizon. In a similar way, the Lord calls each one of us into a mission. The Holy Spirit had not informed these guys about everything that was going to take place. Paul certainly did not know the end of his story at this point in the early stages. He just knew where to go next. And as they took each step in faith, fulfilling their calling in every town, they were following the will of the Lord. Now, you might not ever be called to travel the world like Paul and Barnabas were. Maybe you are, but maybe you're not. But in the very same way, the Holy Spirit will lead and direct your path. Are you intentional in your life right now? You don't know where you're going to be in the distant future, but you know where you're going to be tomorrow morning. You have a schedule, you have a plan. Do you realize that that is where God has led you? This was not your own doing. And God has placed you in those positions of influence and positions of authority and positions of connection with other human beings because God is leading you there to be a light in the darkness. Do you have the same kind of tenacity and the same kind of reliance on the Lord that we see here in the life of Paul and Barnabas in their missionary journeys? One thing that you'll notice in verse five, is that the first place these missionaries carry the gospel to is the local synagogue. Uh, This is going to be the pattern of Paul's ministry from this point forward. He had a deep love for his Jewish brothers. I know that some people have read the book of Acts and said, wow, Luke, the author, must really not have liked the Jewish people. No, what Luke is doing is he is writing a true history of how consistently the gospel was taken first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But as it went to them, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, it was summarily rejected. And in that, Paul was greatly distressed and concerned. In fact, so much so that we read about his sorrow over the rejection of Christ by the Jewish people in Romans chapter nine, verse two. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is Paul we're talking about. He writes that he has unceasing anguish For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you see what he's saying here? He had such a compassion for these brothers, these Jewish unbelievers, that he declared that he would be willing to lose his own salvation if it meant that it would draw them in. I am not there. I am not there, and I doubt that you are there either. But he had such a deep love for his biological community that he wanted them to know the gospel. And so what we see is that he consistently goes to them first. And so as it says that they preached in all of Cyprus, most scholars believe that that means they went to every synagogue on that island, which is probably between 16 and 20 at this time. And they went to each one, meaning that's 20 weeks of occasions to proclaim the good news on a Saturday morning, a Sabbath morning there in the synagogues. And they would probably spend time during those weeks traveling and communicating the gospel to any who had interest. So there we have the mission Now we move forward to the composition. Specifically at this point, I'm speaking of the composition of the team that went out from Antioch. Because there are some interesting questions that should arise to anybody who's paying attention to the sermon that I preached last week and comparing it to the one I am preaching this week. If you remember last Sunday, you will note that only two people were ordained to go out Uh, into the mission field. Who was that? Only Paul and Barnabas. But here you read and should find it strange then that it says they had also John to assist them. This is John Mark. Uh, He is the young man at this time whose mother owned the upper room where Christ had the last supper. This is the guy whose mother owns that upper room where the Holy Spirit came with power this guy probably grew up always hearing the teachings of Jesus. He probably always knew about the Lord. It seems that he was very active in the Jerusalem church. And this man grew and engaged himself in ministry alongside the brothers there in that capital city of Israel. He also happens to be the nephew of Barnabas. So in the final verse in chapter 12, we see that Paul and Barnabas picked him up in Jerusalem and brought him along to help out in Antioch. So it seems like that year that they were in Antioch, this guy, John Mark, has been with them and serving alongside of them. So here's my question. Why is this young guy joining the team in Antioch if the church there only sent out two? If they sent two, why are there three? Now, you'll probably remember last week, I made a huge deal about the fact that those who go out to plant churches must be sent because churches plant churches, and that those who are set apart for ministry must be ordained by a church. You don't just decide to be a minister on your own. So what is going on here with John Mark? Did they do something wrong? The answer to that is absolutely no. And the reason why is that John Mark is not functioning in the same role as the others. Now, you'll remember that last week I noted there are some who go out onto the mission field as assistants to those who are doing the ministry. For example, our church supports two of these kinds of servants, two John Marks, as it were. We have Rachel Wessel. She is not going to plant a church. She is certainly not going to be a pastor. Rather, she is in Mexico, uh, right now training, but then going to serve alongside a person who is leading a church there, someone who has been commissioned. She is a John Mark. Also, we have Alejandro up in Albany. He is not planting a church. That is not his purpose. Rather, he has been sent to assist those churches that are healthy and that are in existence and to point college students in their direction. You see, this word that is used here for assistant that we see for John Mark is a very different word than minister or pastor or church planter or anything else that we may see in our English language or in the text here today. A.T. Robertson, I think, explains the Greek wording underneath of our English very well. This word that says he came to assist them, he describes it this way. He says, in classic Greek, the word used to describe Mark is a word for common sailor distinguished from the word in Greek, naotase, which um, is probably the wrong way to say this, which means a professional or skilled sailor. In other words, this is the lowest of the low on the totem pole of sailors. And he continues and says, these were the men down in the ship's galley doing just one thing, rowing with their eyes forward on one man, the man standing at the front shouting, row, row, row. This suggests an interesting picture of John Mark as the helper of Barnabas and Saul. He most likely functioned like our modern day ministry interns. This guy is not a pastor. He is not a church planter. This man is a helper. And you get a good picture of that as you see somebody watching the person in front, telling them when to go and what to do. Row, row, row. So church, perhaps you were sitting in your seat last Sunday and you were saying to yourself, Good. I am not being sent out. Therefore, I am obviously not called to go. I am not going to go overseas. I am not going to go plant a church. Therefore, I am not a goer. And all I want to say to you is that we are not called to be cozy all the time in that manner. Perhaps God is not commissioning you to be a lead planter or missionary in that sense, but maybe he is calling you to be a John Mark, at least for a period of time. Please understand that missionaries need this kind of support. What was John Mark doing? He was probably taking out the trash and carrying luggage and cooking meals and washing clothes, and this was certainly not a glamorous job. What he was doing was by no means going to make him go up the, the chain for a better job later on in the world. He just did whatever they told him to do. And there are so many support roles that need to be filled in terms of ministry. The workload is absolutely massive. So perhaps you need to go to DR for a week this summer and serve the churches there. Perhaps you need to travel to Italy and help the Shreks with literature distribution, or maybe just watching Chi-Chi for a little while while they go and do the ministry together. Perhaps you need to volunteer one day a month at the Borough Pregnancy Counseling Center and help them to organize donations so that they can spend their time counseling women in crisis pregnancies. Maybe you need to help out with cleaning here at RGF, or hopping onto the schedule to help out with Redeeming Grace Kids or whatever it might be seek the lord about how you might be like john mark joining in advancing the kingdom third point here today the magician whenever the church of jesus christ begins to expand into new geographic territory in the book of acts there is always a satanic response it's like it's like a, a whenever you have two opposing sides of a magnet and you move them together, one side moves and the other side has this interesting response, even though you're not touching it, it pushes away. Well, here, what we see taking place is the opposites of the spirit of God and the spirit of Satan opposing one another in this place. You will remember back in chapter 8 when the gospel first spread to Samaria, there was a sorcerer named Simon who became a false convert and he was infiltrating the church and causing destruction there. He desired to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? So he could use it for magic tricks. So he could use it for dishonest gain. Well, Once again, we come across a man who is also described as a magician. However, this man seems to be different. Whereas the previous guy, Simon... He seemed to be like a trickster, somebody who was just pulling somebody's leg and getting some money and doing some interesting things. Well, here, this man seems to be the real deal. He is described in a much different way linguistically. This leads me to think, in agreement with most scholars, that he was truly able to do supernatural things by way of the occult. Look again at verses 6 through 9 to get a better introduction of him. It says, When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now notice a few facts here that Luke shares with us about this man, this magician. First of all, he was a Jewish man, This should be very surprising because magic was strongly condemned by the Old Testament. For example, just one simple example of the many that I could choose from, Deuteronomy 18, 10-14 says this severe warning from the Lord, there shall be not found among you anyone who burns his own sons or daughters as an offering or anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or who is a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or anyone who inquires of the dead for whoever does any of these things is abomin- an abomination to the Lord and because of these abominations the Lord your God is driving them out before you you shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations, which you are about to dispossess, they listen to fortune tellers, they hear diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do this. He is declaring in no uncertain terms, stay far away. He uses every word in the ancient vocabulary that is possibly available to describe any form of magical activity and says, don't do that. Yet this man, this Jewish man, has turned away from everything that the Jewish people had taught in this regard. Now, you'll notice that he is not only called a false prophet, which, by the way, the book of Deuteronomy also tells us that as a false prophet, he was worthy of being stoned to death, but it also calls him a magus or a magician. This word magus would put him in a similar position to the wise men that we see in the book of Daniel. Remember, Daniel, he had power from God, but these other guys also had power. Limited power, but yes, power. These were the men who stood next to the king and who would tell him what to do and would interpret their dreams. We also see something similar when we look back to Moses and as he goes and speaks to Pharaoh. He also has these two court magicians. These were wise men, these were people who would tell him what to do and what his dreams meant. And we even see that they have satanic power. For example, when Aaron throws his staff onto the ground and it turns into a snake. God did that, but then what about these two others? They cast their staffs onto the ground and they also turn into serpents. That, by the way, is the power of the devil at work in the Old Testament. These are the kinds of men that this Jewish guy, this magician, this bard Jesus is attempting to be. He is getting into the inner circle Of this powerful individual because he believes this will help his status. This will cause him to be quite wealthy. So it says that he is with Sergius Paulus. Now, there's a big difference between being with somebody, just in terms of being near them, and being with them and they know you're with them. For example, if I was walking into uh, the, um, if I was trying to get into the Knicks stadium over there, MSG, and I was trying to go to a game, and I was walking next to one of the players, guess what? I'm going to get to the door and I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to make it look like we're together. But then the guy's going to say, wait, who are you? If that guy doesn't say he's with me, I'm not getting in and they don't know me. So I'm not getting in. Well here, this guy, Sergius Paulus would say, oh, he's with me. They are together. They are on the same team. They are unified. And so here, what we see is Sergius Paulus has been under the influence of an evil satanic individual who is serving the opposite of the gospel. And also notice that he took on a name for himself. This is probably not his birth name, although it may have been. He calls himself Bar-Jesus, which literally means the son of Jesus or the son of salvation. And it says that he had made it his personal mission to keep the proconsul away from trusting in Christ. Why did these, this, this individual have a connection with Barnabas and Paul at all? It says, because the proconsul desired to hear the teaching. Well, guess what? Bar Jesus knows, if they're going to share this news, I am out of a job. So what do I need to do? I need to oppose the gospel. So by way of application, I want to simply remind you that opposition does not mean that the Lord is against you. It doesn't mean that your plans are a failure. It means that Satan is against you. So I encourage you to carry on in faithfulness, holding fast to the knowledge that Christ is for you and that he is your shield and he is your fortress. Jack Arnold speaks to this in his book, The Blessings, Burdens, and Blunders of Missionaries. He writes, The church today is still in a battle for the minds and souls of men. The church has always faced and will always face satanic opposition when the gospel is preached, for it is penetrating into Satan's kingdom of darkness. The enemies of the gospel try to keep the gospel away from people. And if they cannot keep it away, they try to ridicule and use social pressure to keep people from coming and committing their lives to Christ. Satanic opposition is real, but God is greater than Satan, and he will push back the forces of darkness. I love that. By the grace of God, our church has experienced very minimal, I would say, in the way of these sorts of attacks. But do not be fooled something is certainly on the horizon. There always is. And what we need to do in order to prepare is to be daily dressing in the full armor of God so that when the fiery darts of the evil one begin filling the air around us, we might be able to stand firm. Point number four, the transition. There's a very subtle but quite significant shift that occurs in our text today. It is right here that Saul of Tarsus begins to go full-time by the name Paul. Now, Both of these were his official names. He did not have a name change here in the text. In fact, as a Roman citizen, he would have actually had three Latin names. We only know one of them from the Bible, which is Paul, or literally Paulus. But as a Jewish man, he was also given a Jewish name that he probably almost always used, because as we know, he delighted in being Jewish. He was, as he says in Philippians chapter 3, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And his Jewish name was Saul, named after the first king of the tribe of Benjamin, which was also his tribe. So he probably had almost always signed his checks, Saul. But now he is going to go forward using the name Paul. We're getting ready to have a new baby right now. Uh, I'm kind of hoping that Ashley's having contractions right now. Anything? No? Nothing? Okay. (sighs) Soon... But we've always given our kids names that are relatively obscure and um, that few people have. And for that reason, we always try to give them middle names that are a little bit more normal, for lack of a better uh, word. This way, if Athanasius grows up and he says, you know what? I don't like the name Athanasius. I don't want to be called Athens anymore. He can simply go by Scott and people will know that name and recognize that name and are okay with that name. And if he chooses to do that, only a select few people, including the IRS, will ever know that his name is actually the long compound Greek word that means immortal. Everyone else will just think that his name is Scott. Well, why does Paul start using his name Paul instead of Saul? Well, I'm Sure, that part of it has to do with the fact that he's talking to someone with the same name, Paulus, and that probably helps. It instantly gives him something in common with the proconsul. But more than that, he is now going to use his Roman name because he is shifting into ministry that now extends far beyond the Jewish community and the synagogues, and it moves into the Gentile world. Another transition that you should note in this text is this. Whenever you see a list in the Bible it is almost always, if not always, ordered in the order it is placed for a reason. The words are not in that list arbitrarily. They are placed usually according to significance. So historically, you would put the most important item first, and then write the rest in descending order of value. Lord willing, uh, next week, my friend Harry Fujiwara is going to preach here. Lord willing, we're going to swap pulpits. And... um, I'll be preaching, Lord willing, for him in Manhattan. When I learned that we were initially pregnant with our first child, Asaph, I wrote to Harry. He was a good friend of mine. And I wrote to him. He was on vacation at the time in Japan. And so I just wrote him a quick email. And I said, hey, I've got five things I need to share with you. Uh, First of all, something about youth group. Second of all, the men's retreat date has changed to whatever. Uh, Third, Ashley's pregnant. Uh, Fourth, and then I just kind of slid it in there. That's what you call burying the lead. Well, jump back up to Acts chapter 13, verse 1, and you'll notice in your Bible that there are five men listed that are part of the leadership of the church at Antioch. And Saul, Saul of Tarsus, this guy Paul, he is listed last, while Barnabas is listed first. But in our text today, Paul becomes the de facto leader, and from here on out, he will always be listed first. And this speaks both to the humility of Barnabas to recognize the superior gifting of Paul as a teacher, and also to the boldness of Paul to take charge in this situation, which could be quite terrifying. So, There's a transition not only in name, but also in position that is going to last for the rest of the life of Paul and begins right here in our verses today. And honestly, I'm incredibly thankful that this has finally happened because every text that we've gone through where he is called Saul, I still just accidentally call him Paul the whole sermon. Uh, But I'm thankful that this has finally taken place. Point number five the admonition. To admonish somebody means to call them out for their errors or for their sins. One Bible dictionary describes it this way. It says, to counsel somebody strongly against wrong practices or to caution or advise or warn against danger of an offense. Now, I'm choosing the word admonition here rather than condemnation for a reason. What Paul does to rebuke this man is an admonition rather than a curse or condemnation. Notice what it says. It says, Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, Looked at him intently and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This is what John MacArthur calls the direct approach. Uh, It seems as though Paul locked eyes with this man as soon as he began to oppose and that he called him out very loudly and publicly. And doing so, he makes a brilliant play on words that doesn't easily show itself in English. Remember, his name is Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. But he doesn't call him that. Rather, notice how Paul addresses him. He calls him by name, son of the devil. Hey, you, hey, son of the devil. Jesus has called people this before, particularly the Pharisees. And he says, you are a son of Satan himself. And Paul makes clear that by opposing the gospel, this man opposes all righteousness. Now imagine this scene. They are probably in the courtroom, the open throne room, as it were, of Sergius Paulus, this beautiful, probably marble building. And Right now, Paul is standing in front of the most powerful man on the island, and Paul calls the magician, the right-hand man of Sergius Paulus, a liar and a villain, full of all uh, lies and villainy. Not just that he does these things, but he's filled to bursting with those traits. Now, note that uh, how he words here, verse 10, he says, you will, n- "'Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord?' He asks this as a question, and Paul often asks rhetorical questions, but I don't think that's what he's doing here. Remember, John the Baptist arrived to make straight the path of the Lord. What does that mean? It means that it was his job to clear the way for for people to easily hear the word of Jesus more clearly. But what Bar-Jesus was doing was intentionally attempting to obscure the road to heaven. But I hear this call from Paul as a question, an actual question, not just a harsh rhetorical declaration. It seems to me That this is actually a call to the man to repent. He's saying, How long will you do this? How long will you be like this? How long will you keep doing what you are doing? Now, remember that when Paul himself was opposing the gospel, he was struck with temporary blindness. And he was struck with blindness until a missionary came to him and shared with him the gospel and he believed. Now, I could be wrong, but I do think that the fact that this man was not sentenced permanently to blindness indicates that there was some kind of legitimate conversion on his horizon. It's possible, although we don't know, but once again, to quote John MacArthur, he simply says, I would not be surprised to see this man in heaven. And I agree with him. In this moment, we see the serious boldness of Paul on display as he he is used as a mouthpiece of the Lord to levy a temporary curse over this man's life. It should be noted that you and I are not, Paul, we are not apostles. This is not a tactic you should use in your evangelism, and even if you attempted, it would not work. What we can do is what Paul later instructs Timothy to do when false teachers like this arise. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 5, But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist, discharging all the duties of your ministry. He doesn't tell you to strike people blind. He doesn't tell Timothy to do that. Rather, he says, you just continue to be faithful. Which brings us now to the conclusion, point number six, the contrition. We'll have to wait till eternity to know what happened to the magician if he ever truly repented. However, we do know that there was at least one soul that was forever changed that day. In verse 12, it says, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's go back to August 6, 1993, the World Boxing Council middleweight championship that took place in the Coliseum in Puerto Rico. The greatest fight, in my opinion, of all time. Gerald McClellan versus Jay Bell. Has anyone ever seen that fight? Does anyone know what I mean by this fight? It was phenomenal. You can see it on YouTube. Not only was the place sold out, but there were many people who had snuck in just to get a chance to watch what they expected to be an incredible fight between two very evenly matched opponents. The announcers expected the fight to go a full 12 rounds. If you listen to the discussion they have beforehand, they think this is going to be a long, drawn-out battle. There are even people like from the rafters, you can see, looking down to observe what's about to take place. And after being introduced, the bell rang and the fighters kind of moved around a little bit and kind of tapped at each other, feeling each other out. And then one swing, the first hit, landed from McClellan and it laid bell out on the ground. And the fight was over in 20 seconds, which is to this day the record for the shortest professional boxing match of all time. In our text this morning, there was a man filled with the devil Pitted against a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And from Sergio, Sergio Paulus's position, perhaps he was expecting a genuine knockdown, drag out fight. But when you're in a dark room and somebody hits the light switch, the light has to take over and the darkness must dissipate. The darkness has no choice but to flee. And when the power of God is contending with the power of the devil, there is no contest. God and the devil are not equal opposites, this is not a yin yang thing. Satan has no power that could ever make a dent in God's plans. That's why no weapon that is formed against you shall ever prosper. Sergius Paulus saw the power of God on display through the blinding of the magician. He saw God working through this miraculous event that took place. But I want you to notice something very significant in the text. You will see that this, this blinding of the magician is not what caused Sergius Paulus to have faith. Look at verse 12 again. I want you to notice something. Let's break this sentence down into pieces. First, it says, Then the proconsul believed. Yes, this is the joyous news that there was indeed a radical, genuine, eternal transformation that occurred in the life of this ruler. But the next words are part of a clause that is designed to show you timing. It says, quote, When he saw what had occurred, again, this is descriptive, not a statement of causation. It says, when he saw what had occurred, that is when he got saved, but it doesn't tell you why he got saved yet because there's another clause that informs us exactly how it is and what caused the difference that made him trust Christ. It says, for or because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now listen, you and I do not have the power to go out there and blind people who stand in our way. And thank God for that, because I think we would misuse it. And it's okay that we don't, because we don't need it. Notice that Paul had no power to change this guy's soul by blinding an individual. You don't need that power, and neither did he. You need the surpassing value of Christ to be on display through the proclamation of the gospel. It is the teaching of the word that transformed Sergius Paulus, and that is what transformed you, and that is what will transform anybody else. And that is good news because if it relied on you to convince somebody, you would never make it. You would always fail, and so would I. You don't have the manipulative powers to make somebody's soul convert you can't do it and neither can I. It was the teaching of the Lord that caused this pagan man to believe. And you have that. You have the same ammunition that Paul carried with him. So as my final application this morning, I want to simply speak to anyone in this room that doesn't know Jesus as your savior. We who do, we carry this good news. If you've never been born again, or as the Bible literally calls it, being born from above, I say to you that there is a way to be right with God. There is a way to have your sin forgiven. There is a way to spend eternity in heaven rather than hell. There is a way to be saved from the eternal consequences of your sin. And that is simply this, by seeing yourself rightly as a wicked sinner who has broken God's commands, you have fallen short of his glory. But the good news is this, that in love, God sent his only son so that anyone who just believes that Jesus died for them and that he rose again for their justification, will be saved. If you believe that his righteousness is now applied to your life, you will be saved. And if you are saved, there will be a radical transformation, a turning, a repentance, where your life will be significantly and substantially different from this point forward and forevermore. So I tell you, if you're not a believer today, I don't want you to leave before you are. I want you, like Sergius Paulus, to see the good news of the gospel and believe it. So today, in just a few minutes, we're going to have sandwiches and food that people have brought together in the back of the church. Stick around. Ask questions. If you don't know Jesus Christ, get to know what this whole gospel is all about. And for those of you who do know him, carry that gospel boldly, just like Paul, because we know that that, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your love that is on display in this text, that you desired to transform the soul of Sergius Paulus, that you wanted to bring him from darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. And Lord, we thank you that you did that, even in the midst of significant satanic opposition. Lord, I thank you that when we say significant opposition, Lord, compared to your power, it is just dust. Lord, I pray that we would never fear, that we would never back down, that we would never look at our foes or our enemies that oppose us as somebody who's capable of limiting your gospel. Lord, instead I pray that we would see that in a fight, the Holy Spirit always wins. And Lord, I pray that you would give us strength to do that, to share the gospel faithfully, and that you would cause us to be lights in the dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.